From MGMA, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams. So with physicians having only limited time with patients, they must be armed with the right data and we can't waste their time by giving them information that is not relevant or actionable. Having said that, the opportunity to improve coordination of care via technology is significant. That's Rob Tennant talking about how technology can help make healthcare more efficient. We'll hear more from Rob later in the show. We'll also talk to Keith Dressler about telehealth platforms, Lori Phipps about patient portals, and Andrew Yonke about cybersecurity threats and how to keep your data secure. That's all coming up on this episode all about health IT. But first, a word from our sponsors. Imagine being able to increase patient access through innovation, reduce turnover in your organization, or plan a thorough revenue cycle that reduces inefficiencies. Those are just some of the problems facing medical practices that will be addressed at this year's MGMA Annual Conference, October 13th through 16th in New Orleans. For more information and to register, visit mgma.com slash bigeasy19. The healthcare sector is one of the biggest opportunities in technology today. Joining us now from our DC office is Director of Health Information Technology Policy, Rob Tennant. Rob's here today to talk about the current state of health IT. Rob, thanks so much for joining the podcast today. My pleasure. Now, you're Director of Health Information Technology Policy at MGMA. I just want to know, have you always had an interest in technology? Are you a techie, or where, where did this interest come from? Well, it's a great question. Um, and I've always had an interest in technology, but certainly no tremendous expertise uh, before I came to MGMA. But um, very soon after I started, I want to say about two weeks, we were having a staff meeting, and the boss at the time said, oh, there's this new law called HIPAA. We don't think it's going to go anywhere, but who wants to take it? And nobody put up their hands, so she pointed at me. She says, Rob, you're now uh, in charge of HIPAA. And little did I know that it would really turn out to be a career because HIPAA, of course, uh, has expanded uh, beyond its original intent. And really, healthcare is has been driven by technology. So I've, I've really enjoyed um, learning about it and, and helping our members navigate the, the many challenges associated with, with health IT. Mm-hmm. Now, you're in the D.C. office, so we don't get to interact all that much. We're out here in the Denver area, and I'm just curious, what is your day-to-day like? Well, um, I tell you, it's a lot of reading. That's the one thing that uh, we do here in D.C. So we get, um, I probably get hundreds of emails a day. Many of them are trade press uh, announcements. Um, So I do a lot of reading. We get a lot of printed material as well. Um, Certainly when regulations have been released, and they can be hundreds of pages, so there's a lot of reading of those. Um, But because I sit on a number of boards and work groups, I probably average between three and five hours of conference conference calls a day. So I'm uh, working on everything um, from EHRs to privacy and security, uh, administrative standards. And so uh, all of those work groups are very demanding, but it's important 
for the uh, medical practice perspective to be included on these work groups. Mm -hmm. One part of uh, technology, and it's a, it's a great thing, and it's also a burden, it's what you're talking about. It's so much emails. It's that noise that comes in. I know that our yes. listener, yeah, I know that many of our listeners experience that same thing, and and they have to be efficient and productive in their job. So just from an expert like yourself, how do you sift through the noise? How do you know what's important and what's not and then what to focus on? Yeah, it really just takes time. So um, there's a lot of repetition. So when something breaks, uh, let, let, let's say the government releases a new regulation, um, there'll, there'll be a flurry of emails. And so you also want to uh, pick your spot. So in particular, are there reporters or are there media outlets that you really enjoy or you trust their perspectives? And so I'll, fo I'll, I'll fo focus in on those. Uh, but, but also, um, one thing I forgot to mention, an important one, is I'll get member emails and those rise to the very top. So I get a lot of questions um, from members on technology policy um, and so, uh, of course, those are, are very important to, an to, an to answer. And, you know, a big part of my day is answering those or phone calls from members or follow-up um, phone calls to emails. So being able to interact with the members uh, is so vital because it not only, I hope, helps the member, but it helps me to understand how these technology policies are impacting our members sort of on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm -hmm. Now, you've been with MGMA since 1997. You were talking about HIPAA uh, hitting and you being involved with that uh, in the early days. But what in the field has surprised you over the last 20-plus years? Because technology doesn't stand still. It continues to change. So what's something that's emerged or uh, entered the fray in, in healthcare IT uh, that's, that's really caught your eye? Well, two things, obviously. Um, you know, one is the uh, pervasive use of electronic health records in practices. You know, when you know we were first starting to track um, EHR use in practices, uh, working closely with folks like Dave Gans on the research side. You know, we were tracking around fifteen or twenty percent of practices. Most of those being large ones, uh, big multi-specialty groups. Now we're up probably close to 80% plus. And so that's been a huge change. Um, one of the sort of negative changes is really the reluctance of health plans to embrace electronic standards and administrative simplification. You know, while relationships between providers and health plans have certainly improved over the last 20 years, it still remains somewhat adversarial. And we struggle as an industry uh, to do the right thing in terms of decreasing costs by using technology and standards. So it's a, you know, I thought certainly 20 years ago that we would have solved a lot of the administrative hassles that practices face. But frankly, you know, they're more pervasive than ever. So I think a positive has been the EHRs. A negative has been, frankly, the health plan reluctance to embrace change. Mm -hmm. Why has there been that adversarial relationship? I mean, what is at the crux of it, and ha have there been any strides that have been made? 
I think the crux uh, is it boils down to one word, and that is money. You know, the idea is that uh, health plans, uh, for the most part, are for-profit entities. So the more money that they pay to providers, it's it's less money in their pockets. So they are, in some ways, very stingy. They're looking for opportunities to in, improve their revenue streams. Um, and so there's been that adversarial relationship where physicians do not like health plans telling them how to practice medicine, uh, where health plans say they need they need to be an overseer to make sure that the monies are dis distributed fairly and that patients are receiving the appropriate care. So I think there's that natural tension between the two stakeholders. Uh, but I think as we move forward with some of the new technologies, there is at least a glimmer of hope that that adversarial relationship will diminish somewhat. Mm -hmm. Have Where there have been uh, compromises made, where has that been? Uh, where have uh, the two sides seen common ground? I think one of the areas is, is a simple one, and that is is health data. I think health plans understand that the better data that practices have, that's going to translate directly into improved patient care, which hopefully will decrease costs for the health plans. So I think there's a general agreement on the need for good data, uh, what I call actionable data, but there's still some challenges related to how practices uh, get that data and of course, there's other issues in, in terms of who should pay for that movement of data. So still some work to be done in that area. Mm -hmm. We were talking earlier that health IT uh, doesn't stand still. It's rapidly changing. It's an evolving field. There's new technology constantly being added to the fray. But let's talk about today. You know, we're, we're both sitting here talking July 1st, 2019. Um, what are the biggest trends impacting the field as we sit here to sit here today? Sure, no, a great question, and um, clearly the movement is towards interoperability of health information. So the theory is that the seamless movement of patient data between care settings will result in improved care and decreased costs. However, I would argue that the jury is out, and. In some cases, too much data is as challenging as too little. So with physicians having only limited time with patients, they must be armed with the right data, and we can't waste their time by giving them information that is not relevant or actionable. Having said that, the opportunity to improve coordination of care via technology is significant. As more and more pra practices move towards what are known as alternative payment models and enter into risk-based contracts, having access to that real-time patient data can greatly improve their ability to coordinate care and frankly keep patients out of the ER, which costs the healthcare system billions of dollars a year. Um, some other areas uh, that are impacting medical practices are of course artificial intelligence, um, APIs, what are known as uh, application programming interface software, and real-time benefit trans, uh, transactions. So AI is being incorporated into many areas of healthcare with a particular emphasis these days 
on radiology. So for example, starting January 1st, ordering professionals will be required to consult uh, what's called appropriate use criteria, AUC software, which will inform them which advanced imaging tests will be appropriate for a particular patient's condition. While we oppose the administrative requirements associated with the AUC program, this technology in general has the capability of tremendously improving the care delivery process using AI. Similarly, uh, work is currently underway on a new set of standards for moving health information for both clinical and administrative purposes. It's called Fast Healthcare Interoperability Resources, better known as FIRE, and it leverages these API uh, standards, which is really the backbone of apps that we currently uh, use on our smartphones. So the government has been very aggressive in this area, and they're going to require that EHRs support apps that will permit patients to download their records to their phones and allow practices to share data more efficiently with both health plans and other providers. Um, on the real-time benefit transactions front, um, there's a real opportunity to streamline the revenue cycle for practices. So these real-time transactions uh, are now mandated for medications starting in 2021, but they're already available. And these solutions permit the clinician, while sitting with the patient, to query the health plan to determine A, if a drug is in the formulary, B, whether it requires a prior off, C, what the patient out-of-pocket expense will be, and D, what therapeutic alternatives are available at a lower cost to the patient. So very, very exciting. The next stage will be to adopt this type of technology to a broader set of medical services, and again, using these new FHIR standards, move to a far more efficient prior authorization process. Mm -hmm. Now, you've, you've kind of outlined there that there's so much going on, there's so much opportunity, uh, but what are the biggest challenges medical practices are finding related to technology? One of them you already mentioned was the money side of it. That's, that is one issue, but what are some of the other big challenges that are inhibiting this adoption of technology that's out there or using it uh, correctly? Sure, no, uh, and I can't em emphasize cost enough because you know practices are increasingly reluctant to invest in technologies that don't have a clear return on investment. Uh, we talked er earlier about the movement towards EHRs. That was driven uh, in, in large part by government dollars flowing through the Meaningful Use Incentive Program. Um, but that is over now. And, and the money associated with the new Quality Payment Program and MIPS is very small. So there's not much money. So clearly that is a barrier. But it's, it's also uh, the workflow changes related to technology. Um, so overall, I think it's finding the right technology that is affordable, effective, and works within the current practice culture. These, they remain some of the most toughest uh, asks for practice leaders, and our members are enormously challenged 
uh, by their physicians to find technologies that work uh, effectively in the practice and actually result in improved care or cost savings. So huge challenges. Mm -hmm. Now, in the most recent issue of Connection Magazine, it uh, is probably hitting many of our uh, listeners today and tomorrow. Um, There's a column from your team titled, Would Telehealth Work for Your Practice? I was under the assumption that, oh my gosh, telehealth, that's perfect. Any practice should pick that up. But obviously there are uh, some hindrances here as well. So what are those main factors? Yeah, no, it's a it's a very exciting area of technology uh, for practices, um, but there clearly are uh, some challenges. One, as you can imagine, is reimbursement. So if you invest in the technology, and it can be very expensive, you want to make sure that your health plans are going to support that technology. And Medicare is starting to move more aggressively to um, – Uh, pay for these types of services because they believe certainly uh, it can be advantageous for um, practices located in rural areas, for example, where patients don't have as easy access to physicians as in urban areas. Um, Practice specialty and patient mix is also very important. So not all specialties lend themselves to telehealth services. Certainly, um, family practice, um, dermatology, psychiatry, some of these are are very uh, effective in in using telehealth, but other ones, surgery, um, orthopedics, for example, uh, they are going to require uh, a more face-to-face interaction with the patient. Um, However, even with those uh, specialties that are sort of very, very hands-on, they can do, for example, post uh, surgical visits to check a wound, see how the uh, the wound is healing. For example, that can be done without having the patient take time off of work and and go go in to meet with the physician. Um, the other issue is, of course, picking the right technology. You know, there are literally hundreds of vendors now offering products to practices. Um, so picking the right technology is also is also important. What we recommend is leverage your MGMA resources, including um, our online communities and face-to-face meetings, and talk talk to your peers, talk to your colleagues to find out what technologies they're using. Um, and it also applies to incorporating uh, telehealth into your existing workflow. So, for example, we've talked to some practices that build in, you know, 45 minutes or an hour at the end of the day, and the physician will get on with a Skype uh, patient and and see a number of patients at the end of the day, and that helps the practice in terms of reimbursement, but also can improve patient satisfaction and allow patients to sort of not, again, take time off of work and... uh, still the practice with where where it would be reimbursed for the visit. So again, huge opportunities, uh, but still a few challenges remain. Mm -hmm. Any final thoughts you'd like to share regarding health IT and what's going on out there? Yeah, you know, there's two areas, um, one existing and one emerging, which I think the listeners might find interesting. 
um, there's the constant threat of cyber attack. And I think um, practices are, are not immune. We've heard even some of the largest health institutions in the country have experienced uh, cyber attacks. So I know that we put together a number of member benefit resources in this area. So I would encourage uh, listeners to take advantage of those um, and call us with questions. If, if you have issues that um, you have concerns about, certainly MGMA as a resource, uh, we have some e experts here on staff we, we, uh, which are available to help. The second area is related to interoperability. And back in 1996, HIPAA required the government to create a, a unique patient identifier, a national patient identifier. But because there's been congressional holds on that, the government has not moved forward. So there's some interest. The House passed um, a change which would allow HHS to work on this issue. So we're hopeful that there'll be some movement in this area because you can't have true interoperability if you can't trust the data that is coming into your practice. So is that record associated with Rob Tennant the same as Robert Tennant or Robert M. Tennant or are they different patients? So there's got to be a way to effectively identify patients. So that's one thing that we're working on here in the DC office. So mm -hmm. there is uh, an enormous uh, number of regulations and government actions. So um, guaranteed that uh, if you think um, there's no change in health IT, you haven't read your email for the day. So there's right. always change, and our job is to, to go through it, to, to comment on it, and to educate the members on how this will impact their practice. Mm -hmm. To clarify that, w would that be for a, nat a national database for EHRs? What, what would that look like? No, in fact, that's one of the reasons why there's been a prohibition, because there's been some misinformation regarding that. No, this would only be used to effectively match a patient's record. So, for example, if a practice was sending, um, a primary care practice was sending a record to um, to a spe specialty practice, uh, right now they have to use a combination of name and maybe address or zip code or birth date, and all of those are problematic. So they could use their work address instead of their home address. They could use um, uh, a nickname like Bob in, in, instead of Robert. Uh, birth dates can be uh, recorded in, incorrectly. So there's only one way to guarantee that that record is matched appropriately, and that is by a unique identifier, which is not the Social Security number, which is used all too often, and that has its own privacy and security implications. Is that one of the big issues that you work on is, is developing uh, the right information, try to uh, dispel bad information that gets out there? You were talking about the national database um, not being the actual accurate way to talk about it. So is that one of your issues that you deal with on a daily basis? Absolutely. And, you know, there's, there's so much... Um, data flowing uh, from the government, from the private sector. Um, but I think um, one of our jobs is to remind the government that as they develop policy in this area, they have to take into account what I call the real world 
of healthcare, and that is how practices deliver patient care every single day in this country. And there, there is a tendency to look at health IT from the perspective of the Mayo clinics and the Cleveland clinics that have literally unlimited budgets for health IT. But if they mandate changes on practices, um, as uh, one member, uh, a physician told me, it comes right out of the uh, physician's um, uh, children's college funds. So there has to be a recognition that any policies have to be effective, lead to better patient care or more efficient delivery of care, and have to be reasonable in terms of cost for practices. Okay. Well, Rob, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks so much for joining us and sharing these insights. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. According to a recent study, the average age of patients using telemedicine is 38.3 years old. However, retirees are the fastest growing segment of telehealth adopters. Here to talk about telehealth platforms in more detail is Keith Dressler, CEO of Rhinogram. Dr. Dressler, thanks so much for joining the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me, Daniel. Now, you have an amazing story with so many family members in medicine and healthcare. Tell our audience about that and how it influenced you to follow the path you're on now. Yes, I grew up in a multi-generational physician background home. Um, My dad is a retired OB-GYN. He pioneered laparoscopy. He owned a hospital in his day as well. And um, I sort of uh, knew that I, I wanted to to help folks, but because I really never saw my dad growing up, um, he was always delivering babies, that I, I picked something that uh, gave me gave me plenty of time to be at home with very few emergencies, and I ended up being what my family would call me as the outcast orthodontist. So I, I'm an orthodontist because uh, wanted to help folks, but more importantly, I wanted to have a home life because my dad basically married medicine. Mm-hmm. Now, so I wanted to follow up with that then. So do you still run your medical practice or are you currently focused strictly on your work as an entrepreneur? Well, I actually uh, do both um, and and I need my practice and I consider my practice as the laboratory for my entrepreneurial activities. So let's say for Rhinogram, for example, um, it, it all came out of a need that I have in my practice, but it's not just me. Um, as you mentioned, I've got my, my family members, cousins, um, all physicians, all different types of physicians, and they have the same um, access uh, to my practice problem that I was having or patient access problem um, that I was having. So I knew I was uh, beginning to solve a problem that not only would, would help my particular practice, but would help all of the medical practices. And, and it all stemmed from the fact that um, communication has has changed over the years, and and what was occurring in my practice was my uh, nurses, if you will, were being texted by 
patients that were friends of theirs and my nurses were texting back and I had no idea this was going on and they were exchanging x-rays and my nurses were basically giving treatment advice and I saw none of it. It was all on their personal cell phones. And so one day I asked one of them what they were doing, got them all together and lo and behold, every one of them are texting with my patients. So I knew there was a big, big problem. The other thing that I found out was I'm very uh, first to market. And when Facebook business page came out, I, I was one of their uh, beta users um, as a doctor and they didn't tell us, but they put messenger on it one day. And the next thing you know, lots of messages are coming in and I had no idea they were coming in because they had no notifications tied to them. And I was delivering what I would consider very poor customer service. And because I wasn't responding, didn't even know that it was there. And, and so I realized uh, there is a big, big need to put everything in one place and to protect it and to have it where you own all the data, not the data being spread all over the place on your staff cell phones, even on your own personal cell phone. So hence, Rhinogram uh, was created. And um, uh, because I practice, the beautiful thing about what we can build is I've got my staff that we always see the first versions of everything and they will tell us right out of the gate, is it user-friendly or is it not? Do we need to make this change or that change? And then we get feedback instantly from patients as well. So we know how to actually build the product, enhance the product in a way that, that's like no other, uh, that's really, really friendly to both your staff and your patients. Right. So where did this entrepreneurial spirit come from? You're you're a, you know trained as a doctor, but you also clearly have this other side of the brain that's always looking to develop different types of business lines. That's really interesting. I mean, even before Rhinogram, you were involved in another venture as well, weren't you? Yes, sir. I, I actually, Rhinogram is the third healthcare IT company that I founded uh, over 34 and a half years of being a practicing orthodontist. Um, and I, I guess all I can say is I was born this way. I, I don't know what to tell you. It's my brain type. Um, uh, I love, um, I'm a solutionist and I like processes that are simple and easy. And I don't believe in technology for technology's sake. I believe in technology to solve real problems in a real way, uh, real easily. Um, and, and so my brain is geared that way. And, um, my mind has always thought, how do I make the processes as simple, easy, convenient, and efficient um, as I can with every process that's involved within my practice and to patients? Okay. Now, let's back up then. What year did you decide to form Rhinogram? When did that happen? 
Rhinogram was on a sheet of paper. Well, actually, I would say back in 2014 is when I discovered um, through my staff and through lots of things. And by the way, we had sent out um, text appointment reminders and had been for, for 10 years. Um, but all of a sudden, um, I, I was at the front desk and a patient, I could hear him screaming at my front desk. And I said, what was that about? And they said, well, they got a text reminder yesterday about their appointment today. I called them because they missed the appointment. And they said they texted back that and asked if they could come come in 10 minutes later and we never responded to them. Well, I realized then that text reminder days may be over because the millennial generation moms are hitting the scene and they believe if they got a text, they could text back. And in reality, they couldn't. Um, uh, so I began to look anywhere and everywhere for solutions. I even called my text reminder company and every text reminder company out there to see if there was any way to change this flow, change this process, and there wasn't. So um, that's when I began to think I can solve the problem uh, myself if there's nobody else out there that, that's looking at solving it. So that's what was the impetus of getting me looking at this in a, in a different way, because I knew I was legally responsible for all communications, but I didn't have access to all communications if they're sitting on my staff's personal cell phones. So um, uh, at the end of 2015, I um, actually went out um, after I did all my research, looked at the market and felt like it, the opportunity was there. We are probably a little ahead of the curve, but I like being ahead of the curve because you can innovate and create even better when you're ahead of the curve than if you're trying to catch up to the curve. So um, uh, I began to raise money to begin Rhinogram at the end of 2015. We had our first version um, probably June or July of 16 that went into my practice. It wasn't near ready for the market yet. And it took us about a year to get it ready to, to, to take to market. And we went to market um, the end of March of 2017 with um, our first version of Rhinogram. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of how it, how it all evolved. Right. Well, as we know, technology is always changing, always evolving. So what does telehealth look like since 2017? What changes or new evolutions have occurred in that time span? Yeah, um, the great thing is it's beginning. We're at the very beginning of telehealth, even though things like Teladoc and um, Doctor on Demand, et cetera, have been around for 10 plus years. Uh, the, the market itself uh, hadn't been ready, but they're, they're, it's, they're, they're waking up to it, especially the asynchronous part of it. Teladoc is more of a, and, and, and the like, because there's numerous companies are more 
video end-to-end one facility to another facility type of of, um, uh, telemedicine type of things where um, asynchronous, which is store and forward type technology where maybe you could take a picture, send it in to the doc from wherever you are. You don't need to be um, at, at an accredited facility uh, uh, there. So asynchronous technology is being recognized uh, by our government now. And in 2019, CMS, the Centers for Medicare Medicaid, have approved numerous codes for reimbursement, for remote patient monitoring, for virtual exam, virtual checkup, virtual visit. And that's the biggest thing, in my opinion, that's gonna drive uh, this is doctor reimbursement by insurance. And today's codes will pay anywhere from $12 a visit to $121 a visit. And they continue to expand these codes because they realize they wanna keep the less acute things out of the office and spend more time in the office with the more serious things that need to be treated right then rather than things like, hey, um, uh, you, I cut my hand and you sewed it up last week, but you wanted me to come back and let you see if I'm healing correctly. The patient can simply now take a picture of that, send it to the doctor's office and whoever legally is allowed to look and bill for that can look at it, bill for it and say, hey, you're healing normally, rather than taking time out of the patient day to come in, sit in the waiting room, spend five minutes with the doctor or less for the doctor to say you're healing okay. So again, when you think of workflows and when you think of efficiencies, the more things that can be handled um, basically on the patient's time and on the practice's time, meaning when they send in a picture of am I healing correctly, um, that doesn't have to be answered. It's not an emergency and the patients don't expect that to be answered right then and there. As a matter of fact, that may even be sent in way early in the morning before school starts or late at night after they're getting ready for bed, not wanting a reply then, but just wanting to check something off their list of to-dos and would know that whenever the the provider practice responded, uh, that would be good enough. And if the, the if the wound is, let's say, not healing well, then you can always say, hey, I would like for you to come in. It doesn't look like you're healing exactly like I, I think. And, and two, if picture's not good enough, you either ask them to take a, another picture or again, you have them in. But you're able to keep out of the practice lots of these things. And at least in my practice, and I would think in virtually every medical practice, it's going to cost the practice 30 to $50 minimum anytime somebody walks through the door because you got a glove, you got to sterilize a room, you've, you've got to wipe down things, you've got uh, front desk time, you've got doctor time, you got nurse time. Um, and all of that added up is at least 50 or more dollars lots of the time. And, and yet you can't really bill that kind of pricing so um uh docs are probably in my mind losing money when folks come in 
for those type of visits. And with telehealth, you don't have to, to sterilize anything. You don't have to, to, to go to those expenses uh, that you would normally have if the patient walked through your door. Right. And the bottom line is always top of mind when making decisions and wanted to dig a little bit deeper on that then. So what is the financial impact telehealth can have on a practice? What's the ROI? Let's look at the numbers a little bit. Yeah, well, um, we can tell you from all of the practices that use Rhinogram that they will tell you that there's three big value propositions that they all see. Number one, because of, of how we believe in meeting patients where they live, um, uh, meaning the, the patient is given a HIPAA compliant textable number so the patient can text in, patient is given a, um, a website widget so from the website a patient can, can text the practice and that you can bring Facebook Messenger in as well all into one place. Acquiring patients have increased, uh, meaning new patients have increased 10 to 30% or more on average with every practice that's using this type of, of technology. That's the first value prop. The second value prop is you don't wanna lose patients that you've acquired. They love, and when I tell you love, they absolutely love being able to communicate with you the way they want to and when they want to. So you will have a greater retention of your patients um, uh, like that as well. And then, as I mentioned in the, the previous little question, you're gonna be able to be paid 12 to $121 um, for these less acute visits uh, by the Center for Medicaid, Medicare Services. Um, and then last but not least, every staff member is given back one to two hours of time through efficiencies created by, by this type of, of platform. Um, uh, all added up, I, and I'll tell you too, for those practices that have a high number of uh, Medicare, Medicaid folks, uh, we have a, a pediatric practice that is now doing 18,000 text messages a month. They are, they have tripled their engagement with um, their Medicare, Medicaid patients. And that's because instead of voice calling them, they are texting them. So where you don't get them and you spend hours and hours and hours of time trying to get somebody, you don't, you don't spend that time. Okay. Now you've explained that the ROI is there, uh, that the adoption from the patients is there. They want this ability to be able to communicate with their practice um, through virtual communication or some form of technology. So what are the biggest barriers or impediments to telehealth adoption right now in 2019? Well, I think the, the biggest impediment I would say is um, uh, uh, education of the 
provider um, provider practices and and like anything else willingness to change for something better because what what really i view telehealth to be or what at least the rhinogram platform to be is basically replacing the phone call so anything and everything that is voice called in can now be texted in and i believe the world to be over the next 10 years it's going to be 70 80 percent text social media message whatever you might want to call that to a practice and voice is going to represent maybe 20 percent i don't think voice will ever go away i i think but it's just going to be used much much less than text is and if you think about smartphones um and that's how I think about this, about how my brain works. Um, I'm now texting, again, probably 80% of my conversations with friends, family, office, everything is text. And um, between voice and what I will call FaceTime, Skype-like conversations, uh, you're left with the the last 20%, but I would think Skype and, and FaceTime are maybe 5% or less. So I would think that's exactly how telehealth would be used is the vast majority would be image transfer, text, um, follow-up text from the docs and, and that sort of thing. But realize that patients want to initiate the conversation, not necessarily they, they don't want it necessarily initiated by the doctors, meaning the way you think about communication today, doctors initiate a lot of the texting that goes on and the texting is more reminders, right? I mean, they're, they're texting, here's your appointment reminder um, and the doctors are initiating that. Well, in reality, I think patients prefer if they want their doctor, they want to be able to access them when and how they want to and not really be bothered by by much of anything else. If if a doctor receives a tech test result back and attaches it to a, a PDF attachment or, or a Word document or, or something like that, patients wouldn't mind that getting that because now they've got the test result and it keeps them from having to text back in, hey, where's my te test result or what is it or whatnot. And again, I think when I think about healthcare, the negative results can be sent out very, very easily. Things that come back positive that the doc might have to speak with them, then maybe the, the text back is, hey, your test result is back. And, uh, Dr. So-and-so would like to, to speak with you. Um, uh, so barriers um, uh, today is, is education. And then uh, because people can't, it docs, providers, they, they, they can't visualize how this actually works uh, because nobody has it out there yet. We're at the very, very beginning stages. And then patients on the other hand don't realize even though they want it 
they they don't realize it's available to them that's your biggest barriers today and i would also say that portals um uh you know anytime you have to log into a portal or download an app that's a barrier and again the the telehealth platform that i would recommend to folks is recommend something that has zero barriers to the patient the patient doesn't have to download an app doesn't have to log into a portal or anything of the like they simply do what they always do they just call or text the number they have for their their providers practice okay well dr dressler i want to thank you so much for joining the podcast today and sharing these insights on telehealth platforms One way to reach patients on their terms is through a patient portal. Here to explain the implementation of a patient portal in a medical practice is Lori Phipps, owner of Main Street Pediatrics. Lori, thanks so much for joining the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Sure. Now, tell us about your background in healthcare and the journey that led you to where you are today at uh, Main Street Pediatrics. Um, I'm a doctorally prepared nurse practitioner. Um, I was active duty in the military for a long time and traveled all over the country and all over the world and uh, was able to take care of children with all different conditions. Um, As I got closer to retirement, I I wanted to do something a little bit different and uh, be in control of my own practice and my own practice style and kind of get back to the basics of what I felt healthcare was and um, that's, you know, being able to spend more time with my patients, um, you know, kind of providing care on my terms and, um, you know, kind of like slow down and actually enjoy it again. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the other things that you are involved in is having a digital office. I, I read a quote from you in an earlier interview you had done that said you opened Main Street Pediatrics with a commitment to having a 100% digital office. First of all, what led you to that decision? Yeah, so as I was making my business plan, um, I did a survey of our community here in Parker, um, looked at the demographics and ages of the families, um, and really could see that there was a heavy millennium um, population here. And, you know, then I did my research there, and and I know what they were looking for, and that's um, you know, having some technology and efficiency, um, quick access on their terms, um, but then still having a relationship. But I, I knew that, that that was something I wanted to do because um, that's what this generation really um, demands. Mm-hmm. Now, let's take a step back then and really define what it means to be 100% digital in a medical practice. What is that? Yeah, so... We don't have any paper forms um, for people to fill out. We are um, able to have the families complete all their registration information, pay their copay, pay their bills, view their information, schedule appointments, send messages back and forth to their provider, to the nurses, um, all either from their phone or their computer. Um, For families that don't get that done prior to their appointment, they're able to do it quickly on our iPads here in the clinic. Um, It's very quick, easy, and it's just a a very efficient way without having to waste a lot of paper. Mm -hmm. Now, 
one of the main things with uh, a patient portal really is about allowing greater access to your patients. And, and I, when I think of it, I think about meeting them on their terms, how they want to be communicated with. So what's so far, what's been the reception from your patients? Yeah, they love it. Um, I, I think I think they love it most um, by being able to schedule their own appointments. Um, and then secondly, being able to view their, their health information um, in one place. So, you know, even when patient, patients call here at the front desk, we always say, oh, we're happy to help you here, but don't forget, you can always schedule on the portal. Um, so our families love that. They, they really love having that control over their appointments. Mm-hmm. Now walk us through that for a minute. What does your patient portal look like and how does a patient access it? Yeah, so it's, um, they can, they, every patient that's registered um, is automatically given portal access. Um, it's something very quick. They get a password, they set it up, um, and it's just a, a website that allows them to schedule their own appointments. Um, it's just a quick click of the button. Um, and so they can look at the today's schedule, they can see what's open, they can see what provider has appointments um, and, and do it. it. It literally takes less than 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they can also send messages directly to their provider um, and that's something that we um, keep on top of here in the clinic so that we're able to respond to them immediately. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the impediments of having any kind of new technology is, oh my gosh, how do I get in there? How do I, I've got to log in again. I've got to yeah. figure out, I've got to navigate it. So what have you done with your portal that you know, minimizes that and is, is really user-friendly? Yeah, um, it is, it's just a couple little things and it's a little menu on the side. Um, so it's appointments, messages, billing, my health, and then my profile. So there's not a, a whole lot of area for them to go to and it's all just quick clicks. Um, but we definitely uh, walk them through that the first time, uh, make sure they're comfortable with it. And then we as a practice do, um, I guess um, test runs occasionally, probably one once a month to make sure everything's running smoothly, sometimes more frequently. Mm-hmm. So when someone's on the portal and they're looking at all the options that they have there for themselves, do they also have an option if they have questions? How does that work? If they wanna communicate with you guys, yep. what are they able to do? Yeah, so they're able to send us a, a message. Um, they can even attach photos. Um, so, and it goes directly to my staff or to me, um, and we can just respond to them quickly. Mm-hmm. Is that through the portal then? If they, like if they uh, have a photo they need to share with you, how is, is that uploaded? Do they take yeah. that, say with their smartphone, they upload right. it into the portal and then they send it? How does that work? Yep, exactly. That's exactly it. Um, they can attach pictures, they can attach documents, and we can do the same thing for them. Um, we can attach um, uh, reports or things like that, um, that, you know, or um, educational material to send back to them as well. Mm-hmm. So what kind of feedback have you gotten from the patient since you've uh, implemented this? Um, they, they love it. Um, I think, you know, some of the things that we've kind of had to work through, we have a, a separate program that allows us to um, collect some uh, medical history, um, collect their co-payments, 
um, do all their registration forms um, that they can do right on an app. Um, and so sometimes um, patients get a little confused, like, oh, is this the portal um, or is that different? So we have a patient portal through our electronic health record, um, but we have another vendor that we use for our um, digital check-in. Um, they pr also provide all of our screening tools, developmental screening tools, um, and then they also provide our telemedicine platform. Um, and that's an app that the parents can download onto their phone. It lets them do many of the same things the patient portal does. They, can, um, they can't schedule appointments, but they can view appointments. They can send messages. They can view their health information. Um, they can pay their copay and then um, complete any patient forms, like I was saying, the screening forms, developmental assessments. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, you know, making sure that we're not um, sending them too many, too many different directions, you know, and, and that we've, that we're very um, clear about what, what can do what and um, how they can best access us and, you know, uh, what's important to them. Now, based on what you're saying, you want to make this as simple and easy as possible for the patients. Yes. But you exactly. But you had a lot of decisions to make up front. So many of our listeners are in practices. They may be considering adopting, uh, implementing patient portal for their own practice. What are some of the those chief decisions that they need to be thinking about and kind of map out a business plan then for them? How do they come about and, and make the right decisions? Yeah, I think it's important to look um, to make sure that it's something that is already incorporated into your health record. Um, and then, you know, doing some test runs of it because um, if it's something that's too confusing to access, um, there's, you know, complicated passwords, people aren't going to do it. Um, so it has to be something that's super easy and quick. Um, so we we made sure what, you know, as we were making decisions about our health record, um, that it had a portal, that it was talking to our health record, and that it was also very simple. Um, and I think as a digital office too, you know, um, our health record doesn't do digital check-ins. So we had to have a separate program for that. Um, and initially the program we had to do our digital check-in was separate from the the software we had to do our screening forms and that was separate from our portal and so over the months after i opened you know we had to really look at those things and i finally was able to consolidate it all into one um and and again it's it's um training my staff um to be able to explain it quickly to my patients um, and then making sure that, you know, what the vendor tells you, you know, how wonderful that is, that it actually is. And, and so that you actually get in there as a patient and go through that process so that you know exactly the experience that your patients are having. Mm -hmm. That's where I wanted to go next. I really wanted to turn the focus over to the staff now. So what did it take to get that buy-in from the team? Well, I think because we did this right from the beginning, it was, they didn't know any different. So um, I think some of the obstacles that we faced was um, our health record is not geared towards pediatrics. And so when we have a patient 
I know in an adult practice, it's the patient is the patient, um, but our patients are minors. And so what we're really doing is registering the parent. And then we had to figure out how to get all their children into one portal account. And so those were some of the things that we had to quickly figure out. Um, and so that, that was some of the things I think my staff struggled with initially was, you know, they didn't realize some of those things at the beginning. Um, and so parents would call and say, well, now I'm getting a separate portal for this and why can't they all be in one? Why do I have to have, you know, four different things for my four different children? Um, so we really had to work on that and, and figure that out. Um, but I think otherwise it's, it's easy for them um, and it makes their job easier too. Um, that parents can schedule their own patients, uh, their own visits, excuse me. Um, they're able to look at their health information. So I think it kind of uh, takes some of the burden off of our front desk people. Mm-hmm. The now, phone calls. Sure. Now you implemented this from day one. So many of our listeners, they already have existing practices. So what would be your recommendation there? I know it can change practice to practice, but in your estimation, do they need to bring in additional staff do, or is it more, do they need additional training for existing staff? I think additional training for existing staff. And I, and I think, you know, look at a bunch of different vendors, look at uh, what they offer um, and really test out the, you know, don't just have them do a demonstration online, um, actually test it out yourself um, because it's, it all looks really great, you know, they're, they are good salespeople for a reason, but until we actually got in there and tried to do some of that ourselves, um, some of the programs were really complicated or very limited. Um, and then, you know, like I said before, it's really, I think it makes a huge difference to have one program do many things instead of one one company for check-in, one company for screening, one check, one company for telemedicine, having it all incorporated, even if you don't use all of it at once, it's going to save you a lot of heartburn on the back end. Mm-hmm. Now, you said you had had to do some training for your staff as well. What is the learning curve? What does the training look like? Um, well, I'll tell you, um, I think my staff, uh, they're all a lot younger than me. They're all very digital, digitally savvy. Um, so it was actually, I think it was uh, really quite easy. Um, you know, it's once we kind of found the workflow, it's been a piece of cake. You know, it's it's really so easy and it's it's just, I mean, it's so much better than having everybody sit here with clipboards of stacks of paper um, and scanning them in. It saves everybody so much time, so much time. When did you actually implement the portal and how have you been able to measure it since it's been in place? Um, we started it right from day one when we opened. Um, we meet with our um, electronic health record account manager quarterly. Um, and like I said, everybody that registers their child gets automatically put into the portal. Um, and I would say, if I remember correctly, uh, we have about a 92% um, uh, adoption rate. Um, some people don't use it, um, but most of them do. Mm-hmm. Do they all use, you said 92% adoption rate, that's incredible. Uh, yeah. Are they all using it for 
the same things, different things. Give us an idea of we always hear in technology you have super users so do you have super super user patients who get in there oh, and do gosh. all kinds of stuff or oh, yeah. talk, talk us through yeah. that a little bit yeah i mean there are definitely families that they do a hundred percent of everything before they even step foot in the office so their copay's done all their forms are completed so they just basically walk in and they get you know everything's ready um, all their screenings are done. Um, and then some of them, they'll, you know, they mostly will do their, you know, like the, the registration. And, you know, if we have developmental screening forms for them to do, they'll do that. Um, others will, um, you know, use it just to pay their bill. Um, and then some families just use it to communicate. Um, I need a med refill. Um, I have a question about my child's health, um, things like that. Mm-hmm. Now, what have been the biggest obstacles or challenges in going 100% digital? Um, I think um, making sure that it's always efficient, um, that there's no glitches. And so I, 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 we test drive this um, very often. Um, I, I, I think it's, you know, being pediatrics, it's definitely the challenge has been making sure that there's one account per family and that the fam- the parent is able to access whatever child they need from the same place. Um, that's, that definitely was our biggest challenge. Mm-hmm. Now, do you consider yourself a, a techie or a real tech savvy type no. person? No, uh-uh, no. So I, I never, I don't think I used a computer until I was 36 years old. Um, I never thought I would be typing the way we do now to complete our notes. So I am definitely not. Um, my nurses are all also uh, a little older, um, but our, you know, my office manager, my front desk people are all millennials and they are just, I mean, this is what they grew up on. They can go through this stuff so quick, but definitely not me. Okay. So what you're saying is you don't have to be some extreme tech savvy practitioner to uh, be able to implement this because you've got other experts out there to help you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, you know, I just stress that there's so many different programs and vendors and, and, you know, platforms, just pick one that works well for you. Um, But, you know, keep it simple, keep it simple. Okay. Well, Lori, thanks so much for joining the podcast today and sharing these insights on patient portals. My pleasure. Thank you so much. A recent IBM study found that the healthcare industry was the victim of 88% of all ransomware attacks. Here to explain cybersecurity and how you can protect yourself against data breaches is Andrew Yonke, owner and chief technologist of RainTech. Andrew, thanks so much for joining the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. Now, Tell us about your career in healthcare and cybersecurity. How did that come about, and how long have you been involved in this side of the business? Sure. Uh, well, pretty much my whole career, about 20 years now. And uh, my first job in healthcare IT was actually, I was referred to it from my teacher in Microsoft Certification School. So I'd gone to get certified by Microsoft in the late 90s, and the teacher of that class recommended me to what was his old position in uh, the largest health system in Arizona at the time. And that's when I got my 
first job. So I was the system administrator of the health information management department and started RainTech actually about three years later after moving to Colorado and have been providing IT services to healthcare organizations of various sizes and types uh, ever since. So that's uh, kind of how I got into it, and, and I've always enjoyed it. It's a very demanding vertical industry. Uh, doctors and patients and, and healthcare uh, obviously are of the highest priority, and I think that being able to provide IT services in that arena helps make us among the best out there. So that's why I've always enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. We're going to cover cybersecurity and all its facets, all the different kinds of activity that can take place from security breaches, what practices can do. But if we can back up for a second and just give us a, a basic definition, you're the expert in the field. What do you what do you mean when you're talking about cybersecurity and really what all does it encompass? Well, that's a great question. And the answer these days is layers and layers and layers. And to have multiple kinds of security mechanisms in place that are overlapping in one way or another across the IT infrastructure. So most people think of cybersecurity like antivirus or what we call endpoint protection, which is certainly part of the security picture, but it is not the end-all be-all. In fact, it's really the last line of defense, and we want a lot of other layers of defense to be defending users and networks before it ever gets to the workstation itself or the endpoint protection. So that means having fully licensed next generation firewalls, for example, uh, inspecting traffic, looking at what's going in and out of the network, looking at where traffic is coming from or where it's going to, and working in concert with other layers of security to determine what's going on there. Mm-hmm. Now, some of our listeners may have experienced security breaches, and certainly we read about these major breaches in the news, whether it's in healthcare and, uh, you know, consumer goods, those type of places. But what, what are some of the numbers that you have? Do you have any statistics on the extent of the breaches that are taking place out there? Sure, sure, and they're they're absolutely getting worse. Now, 2015 was a real outlier for volume of uh, data breaches uh, by size and number of records. There was a lot going on, and most of the data suggests that China was particularly active in, in affecting a lot of breaches in 2015, but generally speaking, going back about 10 years or so, the trend is definitely on the rise. And so in terms of individual uh, records, for example, uh, in uh, 2018, that was uh, over uh, 8 million uh, individual uh, records exposed in hacking and IT incidents. Uh, for example, the uh, records exposed in unauthorized access or disclosures 
which is a little bit different than hacking, uh, was also over 3 million in 2018, which was a very sharp increase over 2017. And that speaks actually to another pretty interesting statistic in healthcare, in that healthcare is the only vertical industry in which a majority, the slight majority, it's only about 53% or so, but a slight majority of the unauthorized disclosure of records is actually internal to the organization. And so that can be things like curious employees that are just uh, looky-loos and, and going through uh, to uh, people that are actually stealing information right out of the database to either go perform identity theft themselves or to feed that data to a third party that might be doing it. Mm-hmm. That's pretty fascinating that healthcare is the only industry, as you're saying, where that takes place. Why is that? Has there been any study as to why uh, healthcare has been particularly troublesome on the kind of the inside jobs, so to speak? I don't know if there's a study, but I can tell you the reason that I would suspect that it's the case is that in other vertical industries, if you look at finance, for example, the access to records is audited and even controlled much, much, much more closely and tightly than it is in healthcare. So if you look at uh, an average uh, provider, uh, a specialty provider, or, or say somebody that's got a half dozen providers under one roof and maybe 50 or 60 employees. In that case, if you're not working with a, a top-level healthcare IT provider who, who can and does encourage and work with you to tighten access down, then in most cases, most of those users have the same level of access. And if a user does go poking through the database, maybe they start searching for records uh, of their friends or family member or their neighbor or somebody that they don't like, they have the ability to do that because the, it hasn't been removed. <clears throat> so w- when you make something available to people and it's not policed or tightened down very well, then it does seem to lend itself to people who end up going in. And again, whether it's curiosity or they're actually using it for identity theft, those numbers break down a little bit further from there. But in every other vertical, the majority of exposed data does come from outside malicious uh, attack. Now, again, in this case, it's only slightly, you know, we're only talking about a six-point swing between the internal uh, uh, exposure versus malicious attackers, but it, uh, I think that that's why uh, that's the case in healthcare. Mm-hmm. In, in a recent uh, presentation that you gave, you talked about the biggest myths regarding cybersecurity. What are those? What are the myths? Well, the biggest ones for sure that I think are the most dangerous are, for one, many people believe that either their organization or their technical footprint is too small to be a target. And while there are some kinds of attack, particularly ones that involve social engineering, for example, where somebody might send a very targeted email to a specific user in an organization and uh, it's designed to look like it's an email from somebody else in that organization, maybe. Although I would still say that when somebody can go to your LinkedIn page or to your website and see who your senior leadership team is then 
it doesn't really matter what size of organization you are. That's really all they really need to affect that kind of uh, that kind of attack. Uh, but I would say that the unfortunate misconception that many smaller organizations have is that they think the size of their organization has anything at all to do with whether or not they get compromised. And they don't realize that the compromises are, are coming in primarily through the actions of users. And, and so your users who are receiving phishing emails or credential theft emails, they're the ones that are going and clicking on that. And those emails are sent out by computers. And so it doesn't matter how big of an organization you are. When you're sitting on tens of thousands of healthcare records, you are an absolutely ideal target. And in fact, I would contend that you're an even more ideal target if you are smaller because you're sitting on tens of thousands of health records and you probably have less of a budget to protect your network or train your staff on avoiding these kinds of phishing attempts. And so you're all the more even likely to be uh, attacked. And I would say another similar misconception is actually what we call security through obscurity. And so there's a lot of people that use uh, Apple MacBooks or, or um, MacBook Airs and, and the Apple platform thinking that they're not subject to uh, attack. And that's really just not the case. They're not targeted as frequently, or I should say that platform is not targeted as frequently, but it is absolutely targeted and partially because so many users of the platform believe that they're protected just because it's an Apple and not a Windows machine. And so a lot of attackers are absolutely taking advantage of that as well. So I would say that the, the myth, the most dangerous ones are the ones where people just don't understand that they are at risk or that they believe that they've mitigated risks when in reality they haven't and and not leaving them dangerously exposed. Okay. Uh, final thought here. Do you have an example of a, a case study or uh, an example that you have of a breach on a medical practice, what that looked like in the real world? Sure. Well, I can tell you that the last two that we've seen, one was probably about a year and a half ago and the other one was about four years ago, were both cases where our customer pushed back against the security protocols that we wanted to put in place. And they they weren't just broad about it. They were about some of the specific ones. So for instance, password complexity and expiration. That's a very, very important component. Now, the National Institute of Standards and Technology and even Microsoft are turning the corner a little bit on that and saying that maybe password expiration is not the most secure mechanism because it's leading to a lot of people writing down their password and leaving it just taped to their computer, which obviously anybody with physical access to the computer can then use to log in. But in this case, uh, we, we had two customers who the doctors absolutely put their foot down and said, uh, we're not going to employ uh, these mechanisms specifically, and uh, and so they were um, one of them compromised in that they got a ransomware infection, and fortunately, in this case, we had sufficient tools in place monitoring network connectivity and disk uh, I/O or disk activity on the servers to know that no data was exfiltrated, 
And it's important that people ask their IT provider or department whether or not they have that kind of information because it, it can be the defining characteristic or difference between what is a breach versus what is a potential breach or just what was something that got in and, and did this thing. Now, in their case, again, because we had incredibly solid backups that were completely separate, we actually had them back up and running in production within a few minutes back on their regular production data while that restore job completed back to the production hardware, they were able to just continue on what they were doing. Uh, the other one was similar, but it was somebody who did not get uh, very far into the network. They access a server similarly. Uh, and again, it was using somebody who had a very simple and common password. And in both of those cases, we basically went to the customer and said, you know, 10 years ago or 15 years ago, maybe we could give a little bit on some of these uh, optional or call them optional security configuration and now we can't and basically if you want to keep doing business with us you're going to need to employ uh, our security practices and both did in both cases and have had no problem uh, since then and another one i would throw on to that that's very very important in addition to strong password security is two-factor authentication and that's uh, growing in popularity on lots and lots of different websites and Office 365 can be enabled on remote desktop servers as well and it's very very important and uh, penetration testers which are basically uh, hackers that you pay to find vulnerabilities in networks will tell you all day long that two-factor authentication will do more to stop people from gaining access to your network than almost any of the other things that we talked about. Because even if they do get some credentials from a user, uh, as soon as they enter those correct credentials in that would normally give them remote access to a system, now they're faced with a, a second factor authentication and basically that user is getting something on their cell phone that says, here's a text message with a code or you access an app to allow it. But in either case, they now know that somebody's compromised their credentials and that attacker never got in. Okay. Well, Andrew, thanks so much for sharing these insights on cybersecurity. You definitely have opened my eyes and just thanks so much for joining the podcast today. Absolutely. It is my pleasure. Well, that concludes our episode on healthcare technology. Thanks to our guest. Rob Tennant, Keith Dressler, Lori Phipps, and Andrew Yonke. If you like the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcast. We love hearing from listeners about the show. You can email us at podcast at mgma.com. MGMA Insights is presented by Craig Weberg, Declan McGee, and I'm Daniel Williams. Thanks for listening. <laughs>